we continue our worship under the Word of God this morning, uh, we're going on in our series in Colossians, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. It's a uh, kind of a big chunk of Scripture. We won't be able to cover all of it, but kind of take an, an, an overview. And what I want to talk about this morning is what is true spirituality? And before you kind of just check out on the title there alone and, and kind of uh, you know emotionally disengage, I will say that what Paul is going to say here is that uh, there are really three types of spirituality you can have, and everybody has one of them or a blend of them, and everyone will lead you to a certain destination. So the question is, what type of spirituality do you have, and where is it taking you in your life and in this world? Let's read together God's Word from Colossians 2, 6 and following. The words will be on the screen. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are perishing as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would demonstrate yourself to us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, rebuke us, that you would save us. We pray you would do it by the working of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I was in uh, sixth grade, and it was my first real attempt 
at freedom. And, and truth be known, my parents were actually very lenient, very gracious, and they actually gave us a lot of freedom. You know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, and we had a ton of land uh, just to be able to explore and, and go about. My bus, my, one of my best friends, Judson, he lived right down the road, and he and his family, that is huge farm, and we both had four-wheelers. Like, our favorite pastime was to explore and just ride four-wheelers and uh, dig in the mud and just, I mean, you know, just play constantly uh, on these four-wheelers. It's still a favorite pastime of mine uh, when I go home. But, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds of acres to explore. I mean, I'm 11 years old. That's a lot of freedom. We'd be gone for hours sometimes. But, you know, after a while, my parents' idea of freedom just became a little bit weak, you know, a little bit... um, restrictive, and uh, it was time for us to, you know, set on our own journey of freedom. There had to be forests and land and, th- and places that were unexplored, places that we could go that, that, uh, that my parents didn't really want us going. And so one day we had a plan that we we're going to do this. We took our four-wheelers, drove to the very end of my buddy Judson's property, and we parked the four-wheelers there. And that's probably about two miles from his house already, or from any house already. So we get off the four-wheeler, we, we go through the barbed bar wire fence, we ford a river. By the way, my little brother as well, he's seven years old. So two 11-year-olds and a seven-year-old fording a river, and then, then, then entering into this you know, uh, huge piece of property. And, and suddenly we were in a new world. It, it, suddenly we were free. Nobody else could set an agenda. It was, it was all us. We were finally free from the, the restrictions that you know, my parents would put on. Don't go here, don't go there. Make sure you stay within this 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 area and so we started wandering and you know we're we're like man we are just this is the best thing ever we've never seen this place before look there's a lake over here and we're just running i mean and and and, man we were free and uh, probably about two hours into that having the best time you know somebody's stomach started grumbling and and you could kind of see where the story is going to go right i mean uh the stomach starts grumbling all of a sudden we don't have any food we don't have any water. We don't, I mean, we don't have a snack. We don't have any. We don't have a compass. We don't have. We started looking around. Where in the heck are we? I mean, we didn't even know where we were. We start wandering. Start calling for help. There's nobody answering. Uh, totally unbeknownst to us, we were in the center of this hundred thousand acres of game management tract of land. Uh, there was no, there wasn't a road, a house, a person, anywhere within miles, and we had no clue where we had gone, how which way we had wandered, how to get back, and. and and so we tried to remain calm. You know, we were Boy Scouts after all, but it was like first year. You know, we didn't have, didn't know anything. Um, and we start looking, I mean, we start looking around and uh, I mean, we can't find our way out. My little brother, seven years old, like I said, he starts sobbing. Uh, he's breaking down emotionally. I'm getting angry at him. We're getting angry at each other. We're starting to yell and fight, go this way, no this way. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is falling apart. We, we wander and wander seven or eight more hours and still no way out. And the day starts to give way to the night. And the woods are literally completely silent, except for, of course, us crying out for help. Those cries went completely unanswered. And uh, we're there. And all of a sudden we realize that in our, our quest for freedom, what we thought was freedom, had suddenly become slavery. What we thought was uh, this quest for joy had suddenly ended in emptiness and despair. And we actually had no idea how we were going to get out of there. Um, freedom had become folly. And one songwriter suggests uh, falling feels like flying for a little while. That's kind of how it was with us. We felt like we were flying for a little while until we needed something to eat and a way home. That idea of freedom is kind of a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? Uh, it, 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 there, the, it we seek freedom, personal autonomy. It's unmatched, unparalleled. The, the desire that we have 
for freedom. And, you know, the greatest sin in our society and our culture is to let anybody interfere with you being you, to let anybody interfere, step on your toes, to let anybody dictate um, any way in which you might decide uh, to live your life. The common wisdom is that we're all on our own spiritual journey, right? We all have our own freedom in our spiritual journey. Nobody else can say how we pursue our spirituality. That is kind of the common wisdom. And the Colossian church was in exactly the same place. And Paul kind of tells them, and he tell, he's telling us, that there's really three ways you can pursue your spirituality. There's really three ways you can pursue life in general. And two of them, they feel like flying for a little while, but they're actually falling. They feel like an adventure in the woods for a little while, but eventually they lead to uh, captivity and to serious problems. So there's two uh, negative approaches and one positive. The two negative are the experience-centered spirituality and the religious-centered spirituality. And we'll come at the end to the Christ-centered spirituality. So let's look at the first one. Uh, what does Paul say about experience-centered spirituality? Uh, that, that was very prevalent in the, the city of Colossia at the time. And it's, it's experiential. It's emotional. Paul mentions it in chapter 2, verse 8. He uses the words... Um, philosophy and elemental spirits and that refers to teachers that have come in and said you need to have these emotional experiences you need to have this this experience that's going to really make you a spiritual person that will really set you apart that will really you know kind of lift you up to be a spiritual person and then he says you know very quickly in verse 8 see to it take watch watch out that nobody takes you captive hear the word they're captive it's like slavery paul is saying it will feel like freedom but you can be taken captive. So watch what is happening. So if you've ever feared losing freedom or, or maintaining it, then you would do well to listen uh, to Paul, Paul's words here. So uh, what, what characterizes an experience-centered uh, spirituality? And, and I would say that today, this type of experiential, emotional spirituality, it, it's, it's really all around us. And it's strange because if you look back just even a few decades ago, especially 50, 60 years ago, every philosopher, every uh, professor, every sociologist, uh, scientist, everybody was predicting that by now we would have the death of God. We'd have the death of religion, the death of Christianity, because all the mystery, you know, science and technology and progress would crowd out all the mystery from the world, and suddenly we wouldn't need God anymore, crowd him to the margins, uh, and, and we, didn't, we wouldn't really need him. But what has actually happened is the opposite. In fact, in the last 15 years, there is a spiritual awakening in our culture, a spiritual hunger in our culture that has gone in, in some ways unrecognized, but all the stats uh, bear, bear it out, especially among teenagers and 20-somethings, especially among young people, there is a desire for something bigger than us. There is a desire for the transcendent, for the design to connect, the, the divine, to connect to something uh, bigger and outside of us. And, and in fact, I would define spirituality in those terms. I think Paul does here. I would define spirituality as our desire to have our inner emptiness filled through connection to something bigger than ourselves. And when you define it that way, suddenly you see how it can apply to any aspect uh, of life, how it applies really um, to all of us. You see that when Paul brings that up there by talking about emptiness and uh, filling there in verses 8 to 10. And he says the longing is in fact good, but we have to be careful that we don't get taken captive. Um, like I said, I think you see this kind of spirituality uh, uh, the experiential, like emotional, you see it kind of everywhere. I was in Barnes & Noble this week, and if you're ever in there, just walk over to the, the self-help, self-improvement, uh, spirituality section. It's 
one, one section, and it's actually a huge section in the store. It's not like a corner bookshelf. It's a huge section of the store. You know, authors like uh, Eckhart Tolle and uh, Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra, uh, all those guys, you know, have titles. They're, they're, they're paragons in our culture. There's, this is very mainstream. This is not some side-of-the-road kind of thing. Uh, they have titles like the, the Spiritual Liberation and The Power of Now and Upgrading Your Life. The Book of Secrets, Spiritual Strategies for Healing, things like that. And, and uh, I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, he's just kind of talking about those new age people. I don't really buy into that. I don't really have a spirituality. I just kind of do what, you know, I follow my heart in life and I do what feels right and I believe in self-discovery. And so I don't really believe in the, you know, that kind of spirituality at all. I just kind of follow my heart and do what is fun. But Paul says there too is a kind of spirituality, experiential, emotional-based spirituality. And be careful that it is not leading you into a place like we were in the woods that you actually don't want to go. If spirituality is the desire to be filled, to be fulfilled, to rid ourselves of the emptiness that haunts us, then we begin to seek it in experience and emotion. And I would say that it's characterized by the sense of searching. We've never had a point in history where we see so many people looking to be filled. So many people seeking every way they can uh, to be filled up, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to grab on to something bigger than us. Uh, never in our culture have we had so much at our fingertips from sports, entertainment, to sex, to spiritualism, to, to theme parks. And yet, as one psychiatrist says, we're in a boredom boom in our country. In other words, there's a sense of boredom that just pervades our culture in spite of all that we have. There's a sense of emptiness there. Some, some of what first felt like freedom now feels like falling. So the question, one of the questions this morning is, is, with what are you filling yourself? With what are you seeking to stuff into that hole uh, in your heart? What are you using to quiet the restlessness, the uneasiness that lives there? You know, we can fill it with boyfriends, girlfriends, entertainment, sports, money, sex, whatever. We can find all kinds of ways to try to fill that inner emptiness, but in reality, it will always be like pounding a square peg into a round hole. Isn't that what Augustine taught so many years ago? Our hearts, O Lord, he said, our hearts, O Lord, are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless. They find their rest in you. So it it has a, a sense of searching to it, like a searching but not finding. And that leads to an emptiness, which you see in verse... Uh, eight again. Paul says it's it's it, it's empty. It's deceitful. Um, you know, Frederick Nietzsche once said that when God dies, everything will become weightless. In other words, everything will become empty. Everything will become uh, without root, without foundation. Everything will be weightless. He says, and in, in, in biblical terms, that means without glory. And Paul says they're not according to Christ. You see what he's saying? Paul's saying it's a shell game. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a facade. It's a mask. If a spirituality is only based on an experience and emotion, has no connection to the God of the Bible, it simply has no roots, is no, no foundation, it's shallow, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. I mean, the people of this day are struggling with philosophies like Stoicism and Epicureanism. And how many of us even know what that is? Because, because it, it was there then, but it's gone today. Think about 60 years ago, you were kind of an idiot if you weren't a Freudian, if you didn't believe in Freudian psychiatry, and now Freud is a punchline. Freud is a, a, a nobody, Freud is mocked. Uh, it, it was rootless. It was empty. In other words, it was there in one day and it's gone tomorrow. Our grandkids will make fun of some of the things that we perceive as common wisdom because 
uh, anything that's not based on Christ will be here today and gone tomorrow, have an emptiness to it, will be not rooted and established, as Paul talks about in verses 6 and 7. And then uh, the, the third characteristic of the, the experience, centered spirituality, is that it's self-focused. Uh, also in verse 8, Paul says, it's according to human tradition. It's according to human tradition. That's why we talked about before that it kind of has that that emptiness, but what happens is that it's self-focused. It's according to me. It's according to my wants, my desires, my heart feelings. Uh, at the moment, I suddenly become the measure of all things. Everything becomes subjective based on your current heart feelings, the way you feel uh, at the moment. When you're weightless, when you're empty, your only roots are simply your feelings. Your only roots are flitting feelings that can come today and be gone tomorrow. And of course, that leads to a certain type of behavior. Suddenly, when you're controlled by your experience, by your emotions, you start to say things like, well, of course I deserve to be angry. Look at what they did to me. Of course I don't have to report that on my taxes. Look how corrupt the government is. I don't don't owe them uh, anything. Of course I don't have to keep that commitment to him. Uh, He's not making me happy anymore. Of course I can just walk away from that person. They're not fulfilling my needs anymore. See what, what happens with the experience-based, emotional-based spirituality. Suddenly, the author- only authority in the world starts to become you. And it feels very freeing, doesn't it? It feels very nice. It feels very self-fulfilling until you're on the other side of someone else doing it to you. See, suddenly when someone else, when you're not the one that, when you're the one that the person isn't keeping the commitment to, all of a sudden it's, where's the respect? Where's the justice? Where's the honor? There's, there's moral outrage in our voice. There's moral outrage in our heart. Why would they not do this? We've built an experience, emotional-based spirituality, and when people follow it, suddenly it's good when it's for us, but it's not good when it's against us. And it happens not only on the personal level, but on the, on the big societal level. I mean, think about the fact that uh, the, the economic crisis that we've had and that we're still uh, in. Uh, we've built this you know, emotional-based, experience-based, me-based, self-focused spirituality approach to life and all of a sudden when people in the government are corrupt we're like what in the world i can't believe they would serve themselves i can't believe they would be on that page when you know when people are greedy in businesses or corporations or wall street or whatever i can't believe we would have greed there suddenly we start to have moral outrage at the very thing that we have created uh c.s lewis put it this way he said uh this is an abolition of man he said we continue to clamor for those very qualities we're rendering impossible In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. That's what happens with an experience-based, experience-centered spirituality. Uh, But there's a second kind that's equally feels like freedom and leads to uh, folly and falling. And, and that is a religious-based uh, spirituality. Uh, because the, the, the new teachers that were in the city of Colossae, they, they also were teaching that you had to follow their rules, that you had to be kind of an upstanding person. You had to have their certain code of morals um, or else you were a lesser than. And you see that verses 16 and, and following. He says, you know, don't let anybody pass judgment on you, questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. In other words, this is how you celebrate the Sabbath. This is how the godly people do it. This is how you, this is the kind of food you can eat and kind of food you can drink and the kind of, or kind of uh, drink you can drink. I mean, setting up these rules that suddenly feel like the rules are the definition of spirituality. And, and, he's, and Paul says they're just a shadow of the things to come and the substance of Christ. It would be like falling in love with a shadow. Here's the person right here. Why would you fall in love with their shadow? That makes no sense. 
And I think as a church, we need to be very careful here. This is where we fall into, I think, the easiest temptation is to become uh, a religious, to just be religious, to be just be moralistic, to just be legalistic. And, and the characteristics of this, are the first one is, is to be judgmental. Uh, I just read it in verse 16. He says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you. See what they were doing? They set up the rules. You don't follow the rules. You get judgment passed on you. If you're the good person, you get to pass judgment down on everybody else because it's a whole lot easier, I believe, spiritually speaking and any, any way speaking, to, to, uh, to follow a set of rules, to follow a checklist than it is to follow Christ. It's easier to keep the rules than it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This too, the religious base, the religious centered is also a quest for freedom. Just like when we had a quest for freedom out in the woods that day, it's a way, if, if I can obey all the rules, I can control everything, right? I can control God, I can control uh, my life, I can control other people. I don't have to live by faith. I don't have to trust God's work in my life because I'm already obedient. I'm already there. I don't really need God because I'm already doing everything that he would, you know, I'm already obedient. It's like the, the famous quote that Flannery O'Connor has of her character Hazel Motes in Wiseblood. I've used this before. But he sa- she says, uh, inside of him there was a deep, black, wordless conviction that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. See, if I can avoid sin, I can get Jesus off my back because he'd have, he'd have nothing to say to me. Uh, I saw, we saw this in our, um, our, our son Jude. He's four now, but a couple years ago I noticed that he was, when he was two... We were trying to teach him to pray and teach him, you know, at, at, at dinner time, we say the blessing, and I would say, you know, Jude, do you want to pray? And he would say, no, Daddy, you pray. And so we didn't push or anything. I would pray, and then that went on for a while. But then Jude realized that if Daddy prayed, it was a whole lot longer in getting to the food. And so he realized that if he prayed, he could control the time that it took to, to, to get there and start eating. And so... He started praying these very short prayers because he knew he could pray and get there. And in other words, he was using prayer to avoid prayer. He was using prayer to avoid prayer. Now, he's two years old, so don't be too hard on him. Don't, don't go up to him after the service and say anything to him or, or uh, condemn him or anything. But uh, that's what we do all the time. It's easy to avoid Jesus if we can avoid sin because we can be externally ordered and we don't have to worry about the internal mess that really exists. And so a... A, when we're avoiding sin, suddenly we become the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. We're the good guys and everybody out there in the culture, everybody out there that doesn't quite live up to our standard, they're the bad guys. They're the non-spiritual people. They're not quite up to my merit. And uh, what happens is that it creates this completely judgmental spirituality. We judge people that don't fit our standards and that's why religious people become so proud. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how much I give. Look how much I sacrifice. Look how much I serve. Or, in such despair, I'll, I'll never live up to that. I'll never be that person. I'll never, I'll never have that much spirituality. That's why religious people can become so angry. I can't believe they wouldn't do the, what, I, what I do. I can't believe they wouldn't follow my advice. I can't believe they wouldn't be as good of people as I am. Or, become so sad. I can't believe I'll never be like that. I'll never be that good of a person. I'll never be able to follow like that. And so we begin to judge people on their political ideology. We begin to judge people on their, uh, the way they know Scripture, the way they read Scripture, the way they raise their kids, how much they weigh, on and on and on. We find ways to judge people and see them as 
uh, less than us. And, and just to be very practical, for, I know a lot of us struggle with judgmentalism, with anger, with pride. And so just to be very practical uh, here, I, I would ask the question, that how does the gospel affect that? And I would say, how can you and I treat others with contempt and with judgmentalism and with anger after the way that Jesus has treated us? Jesus came. Did anybody have a greater right to anger? Did anybody have a bigger right to inflict judgment than Jesus? And yet he came, not to inflict judgment, but to bear it. Not to inflict judgment, but to bear it. He took our sins and nailed them to a cross to be forgotten forever. How can you and I take other people's sins and nail them to a public bulletin board always to be remembered? We begin to take the gospel inside, judgmentalism and anger and pride fade away. But it's not only judgmental, it's also approval-based. Uh, you see that in 16 and 18. Uh, Paul says, don't let, anybody, don't let anyone pass judgment on you and let nobody disqualify you. Why would you let anybody pass judgment? Why would you let somebody disqualify you? Again, back to the spirituality issue, to fill the emptiness, right? Why? Because their approval feels so good. I mean, does it not feel really good to be approved of? Does it not be, feel very good to be accepted, to be welcome, to be told how awesome you are? It feels really good. It's a quest to fill, the, to fill the emptiness, but it starts out as a great adventure in the woods, a great four-wheeler adventure, and it ends in uh, wandering and looking for food. It says, if I follow the rules and measure it up, I can be approved by all these people, and they'll think that I am great. And that is a quest for freedom that leads to slavery. As long as that is your attitude, you will always be subject to what Betty and Joe and Sue and, and whoever think about you. As long as you do that, you'll always be wondering if they're going to, you know, uh, if they really like you, if they really approve of you. You know, you go to school, and are these really my friends? And, they, you know, if I'm going to do something, it's going to tick them off. They're going to walk away. And uh, as long as you're there, that will be an approval based, and your life will be focused and based on whether or not Betty and Joe and Sue and whoever actually approve of you. Imagine how it would change your life. Imagine how it would change your life if you didn't need the approval of Betty and Joe and Sue, if you didn't have to fret about them all the time. Imagine if, the, if, the, if, the, if you could be fully known, fully seen by the God who knows all and sees all and accepted and welcomed. That's the gospel. Imagine how that would change your life, your approval idolatries, your people-pleasing. That would be, give you roots that would lead to true freedom. So it's judgmental, it's approval-based. It's also, uh, in Paul's words, uh, without power. It's powerless. Uh, you see in verse 21 and 23, he's quoting them. Here's, here's some you know, rules they came up with. Don't handle that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. And Paul says they have an appearance of wisdom, but in actuality they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, religion and moralism and legalism actually is actually very powerless religion and moralism is is, the, is how a, a person can go to church their whole life 10 20 30 40 years and never change religionism and moralism and legalism that kind of spirituality is is how um it's how you can look very ordered on the outside and yet internally be in complete disarray be in complete shambles a truly spiritual person paul is saying is going to have more than appearance more more than an appearance more than a facade of spirituality it will be deep down in our core he says we can't just you know create rules and pretend that the rules can impart spirituality in life 
I think about if, if my dad had built a wall around our property so that we couldn't get out, you know, in other words, a, a giant stone wall. So we drove the four up that day and it was just a big wall there. Would we still have rebelled? You can shake yes or no or say something. Can we, would we have still rebelled? Yes, absolutely we would have. We would have either found a way to scale that wall or I would have hated him in my heart for building the wall or I'd have found some other way to get at him. That, you know, you can't create enough rules to do that. It just simply can't be done. We would have found some other way because indulgence of the flesh, as Paul says, is a lot stronger than any rules and yet we do it all the time with our rules our human traditions we set up what spirituality must look like and we create little little uh spiritual elitisms like we say things like um uh, uh a daily quiet time equals closeness to god or we say um abstaining from alcohol completely is holiness that equals holiness or we say a one-piece bathing suit equals purity we create those, those rules. Those all might be great ideas for you. They always might be great ideas for you uh, to practice or for me to practice or to set up my own life, but they cannot impart life. Uh, a one-piece a, a one bathing suit cannot create purity in someone's heart. It cannot. I wish it could, but it cannot. And so what Paul is saying is that True spirituality doesn't just look to order our external life, but to let God penetrate every single part of it. A religious-centered spirituality lets us actually avoid dealing with all the internal issues uh, in our lives. It lets me avoid the internal mess that I have. And guess what? If you want to be a truly spiritual person, Jesus is going to come in and mess with stuff. He's, got, he's probably going to start kind of like with a wrecking ball on the inside, and he's going to challenge your prejudices. He's going he's to push you on your biases and your self-righteousness. He's going to challenge the way you spend your money and practice your sexuality. He's going to challenge those things. He's going to be in the internal side of your life, not just on the external side. He changes us from the inside um, out. And I would say for too long that that churches have been much more concerned that people look good instead of actually being good, that people cling to their rules rather than clinging to Jesus himself, that people fit into some kind of mold or box rather than submitting to the rule of King Jesus. And so, Christians, I would say to Christians here, examine yourself. Is this you? Are you simply following a religious-based spirituality, or do you have a serious, or are you changed from the inside? I mean, what has happened in your life in the last 10, 15, 20 years? Have you changed? Have you had things challenged? Have you, have you changed positions on things? Have you grown as a person? And to non-Christians, I would say many of you have rejected or are considering rejecting Christ, but what you're really rejecting is a religious sinner spirituality. It's not really Christ. So I ask you to, to consider the real thing. Consider that your quest for freedom, like our four-wheeler journey, might actually be leading you uh, to slavery. And so Paul says here, what is the real thing? What does Christ-centered spirituality uh, look like? We only have a, a, a few minutes, but he says, uh, the first thing about it is, is that it's, it's filling and it's connecting. He says searching is great. You know, people are searching. Everyone's a seeking culture, as I talked about before. But Paul says seeking is great, but finding is better. It was great that we were seeking our way out of the woods, but finding the way out would have been a heck of a lot better than just looking for the way out. And what Paul is saying is if Jesus is real, if Jesus has come, if Jesus is here, then the search is actually over. The search is actually over because Jesus 
has come. The restlessness can be quieted. The emptiness can be filled, but only by Christ. Experience, Paul says, experience in religion, experience on one hand, religion, that's something you do. But what we need is something that Christ has done for us. And he mentions it in verse 11 and following. He says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with him in baptism and raised to him Raised with him in new life. You see what he's saying is Jesus can perform heart surgery on you. In other words, you don't need a new rule or a new experience. You and I need a new heart. That's what we need. That's the decisive work that has to happen if we're going to be truly spiritual. That's what connects us uh, to, to God. That's through Christ. And without that, we have nothing. That's called conversion. That's called becoming a Christian. That can happen for you this morning. And he says it's filling because now you're at the source. You're not just in a spiritual stream with Jesus. You're at the source of all streams. You're not just in the rays of sunshine. You're at the sun itself. And this is a filling, uh, connecting experience. It's tight. It's intimate. And so Paul says it's relational. It's dynamic. So he says in verse 13, uh, God has made us alive. We were dead and now he's been made alive through the heart surgery he performed uh, on us with his own hands see the teachers had come to the city of Colossae and said here's a body of teaching to follow here's a religion to follow here's the here's the truth practice this truth practice that and jesus says that that's not what jesus says at all he comes and says don't just follow don't just you know obey some truth i am the truth i am the philosophy i am the way i am the life that's a much different much bigger claim and a much bigger claim of spirituality uh, on my life and your life imagine that god himself became a human being and dwelled on the earth with us for us that's what paul is saying has happened and when you have jesus you have all of god in a person and suddenly the truth is not abstract it's not out there it's not to be simply obeyed the truth has become personal the truth is a person now that's what paul is saying has happened you can know him and be known by him uh, Christ centered spirituality is also guiltless and it's powerful. Uh, verse 14 and 15, um, these are beautiful verses. He says, uh, God has made us alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's saying any spirituality has to be able to deal with our very real, very present guilt. And that's exactly what the work of Christ has done. In other words, see that word record of debt? He's saying that is like a promissory note. That's like an IOU. In other words, we've been walking around our entire lives writing IOUs to God. And now Paul says the note is due. The loan loan has been called. The word record of debt actually stands for the Old Testament law. Not, Not just the law, but the law broken, the law thrashed, the law mocked by us. Uh, in our sin. And what does the law say? Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by everything written in the book of the law and do them. You hear that? The law says cursed is everyone who doesn't keep it perfectly. But the cross says blessed. The law says cursed, but the, but the cross of Christ says blessed. The law said dead, but the cross says alive. The, the, the law said condemned, but the cross says exonerated. And so when we look at the cross, we see, yes, our sins, heinous and, and, and offensive before God, but with a giant stamp across the top that says paid in full. Paid in full, nailed to the cross. The law said bound, but the cross says free. 
And so when we see the cross, it's not just some past transaction. It is the present affirmation of who we are, like a banner waving over us, giving us freedom and power uh, in every aspect uh, of our lives, to give us true freedom. In the cross, Jesus has stood on the necks of your enemies, stood on your wounds, on your sins, and triumphed over them and provided us true freedom, true power. Now, I know you're all dying to know what happened to the bedraggled boys uh, lost in the woods. Uh, we came out, uh, we, were, we were there, we were gone through all these briars, we were all bleeding through our clothes, and uh, it was dark, and somehow the, the 100 directions we could have chosen, we stumbled back onto my buddy Judson's land. My parents were looking for us, we found them, they were elated to see us, all that kind of stuff. And, and so the question I have in, in closing is, what did my dad do when he found this rebellious son who had transgressed the boundaries that he had set? What did my dad do? Well, we were very real about the sin I committed. He was very honest about it. We talked about it a lot. But he could have built that stone wall, right, and said, you'll never leave my property again. I'll show you. I'll make a rule. You'll never rebel again. He didn't do that. Or he could have said, well, boys will be boys. You need that kind of experiential emotion. You know, you need that kind of thing. And so I'll just knock the fence down and let you go anytime you want and get lost. Maybe you'll get lost. Maybe you'll find your way back. Maybe not. Who knows? Could have done either one of those. But what he did was he was very real about the sin, but he was also very real about forgiveness for the sin. My dad restored the relationship with a rebellious son, and he restored it in such a way so beautiful that it severed my desire to wander again. It severed the desire to wander because it replaced it with a desire for relationship and knowledge of him. That's what Paul is saying that Jesus has done. He has emptied himself that we might be full. He has disconnected himself from the Father that we could be connected. He's lost his relationship with the Father on the cross that we could have a relationship. He was bound that we could be set free. He has restored the relationship in such a beautiful, profound, glorious, wonderful way that if we take it deep in our heart, it will begin to sever the desire to wander and replace it with a desire for true spirituality a relationship with Christ.